Hi, everyone, and welcome to 50 Now What? I'm your host, Alicia Sutton. Going through a journey with grief after losing a loved one is a life-altering experience, but not one that has to be walked alone. Today's guest, Dr. Karen Wyatt, host of the End of Life podcast, joins us today to help us shed some light into an area of life that can be difficult to explore. In this episode, we discuss all of the methods that help Dr. Wyatt process her own grief and how they can be applied to our own lives. We also expand upon what it means to become a caretaker for those who have always been there for us, our parents. Experience in this area may be painful, but it is something we cannot avoid forever. And we're here to help it hurt just a little bit less. We're grateful you're here. Let's jump into it. Dr. Wyatt, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me here today to discuss what's not really easy to talk about all the time. It's not the thing that we, it's not a hot topic conversation that people are going to be having, but we have to talk about it and talking about caretaking and dying in the grief process. And whether it's an elderly parent or a loved one and dealing with grief with someone who dies is a part of our reality. And in knowing that I wanted to talk about this, I was doing some of my research and I found your podcast. I found the End of Life University podcast, and that is so rich with information and resources. So I'm very glad that you were able to join us here today and share your expertise in that area uh, with my listeners. But before we jump in, I know we got a lot we want to cover. Why don't you tell the listeners a bit about your background and your journey to developing the End of Life University? All right. Well, it's been, of course, a long journey, but with several milestones along the way. Uh, one being, I, I started out as a family practice doctor. My father died traumatically by suicide, and I ended mm-hmm. up shifting to hospice work just to help me cope with grief and his death and dying. And I found out I loved doing hospice work. It was really the place I was meant to be. So that became my new career for a number of years. My next mm-hmm. Shifting point, though, was when I decided I wanted to write books. So I retired from clinical practice and started writing books. And then a podcast came about kind of naturally from the writing I was doing because I wanted to learn more. So I started interviewing people. And I love it, as I'm sure you do as well. It's just the, it's just the best way to meet people and to really tap their wisdom and knowledge. I agree with that 100%. I agree with that 100%. But let's start off with caretaking. And I'm finding so many of my friends and just people around me at this stage in their life who are becoming primary caretakers in addition to their own lives going on. And whether it's, you know, an elderly parent with dementia or long-term illness and whatnot, it's a difficult transition to trying to, and I want you to tell us how some of the ways you can provide a dignified life for that person who is in this condition now, and at the same time being mindful of their limitations, because it is a reality. Yeah. And definitely, though, for for many of us, it's too late to be talking about this, but the earlier we start having conversations with our parents and planning ahead that we could possibly be their caregivers, the better off we'll be, because we will already have discussed some of the major issues And I think that you could set as a goal for your caregiving to help your parents be as independent as possible, or your loved one, whoever it is you're caring for, that you would like them to have as much independence as they can possibly achieve given 
the situation they're in or their health status, but you also want them to be safe. So if you make their independence and dignity are on one side of the equation, but their safety is the other side. And sometimes you have to make hard decisions to protect their safety that may to them feel like you're violating their independence. And that's a really tricky balance to try to achieve. Yeah, I I think it's very easy to slip into becoming you know, the helicopter caretaker, just like you have helicopter parents and you you do want to surround them, but you're still dealing with this human being who, for all intents and purposes, still want to be treated like an adult. So I think I agree with you 100% that taking this on from the beginning is the only way you can go about it. Not the only way, but it's certainly the wisest way to go about it. Yeah, and maybe it's like it's like raising adolescents, you know, that you have to pick your battles. You have to choose what's worth fighting with them over and choose what That's things true. you can let go of. That's true. That's true. And also, what do you think about if you know, sometimes it comes to the point where if they're having to go into a facility of some sort, I think that's always a very difficult decision to make. How can you still... I mean, you're trusting someone to take care of someone while they're in a facility, but how can you balance your own, you know, self-worth and feeling like I still need to take care of my parent or whomever I'm taking care of while they're away from me? Is that a realistic step to even think about? No, I think that's a a major issue because I think many of us feel guilty that if we end up having to help our parents find an alternative place to live Mm -hmm. in a retirement facility or a long-term care facility and feel guilty that we're not able to provide care for them. But honestly, it's such a huge challenge for us to give 24-7 care to a parent when we have our lives to live. We have jobs and careers and families to take care of. Uh, We have to give ourselves grace and some space that sometimes that we have to choose alternatives that we wish could be different. And then I think it's important to establish a really good relationship with the staff, wherever mm-hmm. your parents are located, so that you can talk to them and you have to know it in advance that you can trust them, that there are people caring for your parents that will tell you when something's wrong and have a good communication established with them so that I think that can go a long way to help you feel safer and better about the situation your parent is in. Very true. Very true. I have been guilty of doing this, and I've been trying to rethink and reframe how I've been addressing people who are dealing with an aged elderly person who is sickly and such, and they're caretaking for it. And I've often said, you know, I think you're grieving. This is part of the grieving process. And I don't know if that was framed correctly in terms of how, you know, now they're seeing this as the end. Is this considered, the caretaking process considered a part of your grief process? Or should you be reframing it some other way? No, yes. And I think that um, Mm -hmm. you, you picked up on that very well, that it is a time of grief because so many things are changing. And we feel grief whenever major changes happen in life, not just death, but grief over things that we're losing and Mm. your parents are becoming different people or the person you're caring for and you're losing things that you used to enjoy and used to have with them. So 
I think many people fail to recognize that they're feeling grief about that. So they may not give themselves the proper time and kind of self-care and self-love that they need over the fact that they're grieving. And I think that's it's healthy in a way to recognize as these losses have been happening here, things will never be the same as they were before. But this is what we still have. This is what's what's still happening today that we can enjoy together and what we're able to do right now. Maybe it's something new and different and embrace that as well. It's good to know that I haven't been saying, oh, you're grieving and you're actually <laughs> probably, you're, you really are. So thank you for that. That's a relief. But also accepting, is there a way, is it realistic to maybe take this as a way of just accepting what is happening? It's an acceptance of a new life for you and them. Yeah, and I I think that that's actually a really essential practice in a way for us throughout life, even for our own aging, is to acknowledge in the beginning that everything changes. So all the things that we love about this moment today and all the things we have are impermanent. Nothing's going to last forever. Things will change. And the more we get comfortable with that mindset, for one thing, the more we make sure we enjoy what we have right now and be grateful for it and appreciate it. Because we know um, life is fleeting and things change in an instant, and we prepare ourselves in a way for that change to happen. And when we have that mindset, then we can go through these losses and changes with a little bit more ease because we already acknowledge that things will happen, things will change, this won't always be the same. But we've also been making the most of all the good things that we have right now. Absolutely. Have you found there to be any specific tools for a caretaker in terms of how to manage their own lives? Part of it is grief. Part of them are still having their own lives to live. Like you said, they have kids, they have jobs, they have things going on. Are there tools available for them to be able to realistically adjust to what's going on? I think one of the most important things for caregivers to seek out is some sort of support and connecting with other people who get what they're going through. And one resource I wanted to mention, it's a website called daughterhood.org, and it's an online chat group support group for people who are caregivers who are taking care of their parents or some other loved one. So it's a great place to come and just find other people in a similar situation to learn from them, ask questions, and recognize that you're not alone and you're not the only person going through this. Because sometimes I think caregivers start to feel isolated because they may feel like, well, none of my friends are doing this. They don't understand what this is like. So daughterhood.org is that site. And a book that has been really helpful to me is called Successfully Navigating Your Parents' Senior Years by Star Bradbury. And that book is just filled with information, all kinds of information about all the choices you'll need to make with your parents and walking through that through each step. I have to say, it was only when I started looking into this myself recently that I'm finding that, first of all, I wish I'd had so many resources available. I don't know you know, for for my own, you know, everybody goes through their own thing. But to have these resources available are so valuable to be able to move through this. And I just, I love that they are there. So thank you so much for that. Um, As far as caretaking and dealing with that process for our caretakers, did you have anything in addition to add to that before we move on to our next 
Well, we talk a lot about the importance of self-care for caregivers, and I think that's also something that you have to commit yourself to at the very beginning of this process and recognize, mm. I have to get sleep, I have to get exercise, I have to eat well. I can't slack on any of those things or I won't be able to give the care I want to give. I mean, that's just the beginning, but other things that you need and know what you need to keep yourself healthy and be able to discuss that like, well, I've got to have somebody else who can come in and help at this time because right. I need to take care of myself. I think that is a huge thing is, and what I've been seeing is knowing your own limitations. I think there's this sense that I have to just keep going and keep doing because I have to get this done. And somewhere along the line, you're going to break. And I unfortunately have been able to see people where I'm like, you are so breaking right now and not being able to shift them into a space of, okay, maybe I do need to care for myself. And self-care, and I love how you put that, it's not just about having a spa day. It really is making sure that the basic nutrition is being met, sleep is being met. Exactly. And it's harder than we even <laughs> realize sometimes. It's harder to do at times if you don't get a support network around you of people you can rely on that you can ask to step in and help you out. Well, I love that. Well, I don't consider myself a support network. I don't have that skill set. But when you are, for example, a friend and you do want to be some kind of a support, what would you say we need to do? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I'm, I guess I'm asking for my own advice, free on my podcast. So <laughs> I, I think it's really good if you're able to sit down and think, so what could I offer? Do I have like one hour a week of my time I could offer and then let your friend know I'm available. I could come and sit with your mom. I could run errands for you. I can help you clean your house. I can do whatever you need for me. Sometimes though, being able to sit in the home with their loved ones so they can go out and run an errand is yeah. would be the best thing you can do. So if you have time you can give, or if you're just available, I'll talk on the phone with you once a week and we'll, I'll just sit and listen and you can ventilate to me what's going on. I think that alone could be really helpful. I love that. And thank you so much for that. On to the big one, the death and dying. And I'm going to speak a little bit about my own experience a little bit here. And because we all are going to go through grief, we're all going to experience someone who uh, has passed away, who's died. And there's absolutely no way around that. And I remember going through a similar, you know, my mother passed away, it was cancer, long battle. And I think back, I'm like, how did I get through that? You know, I kind of I think I told you before, I kind of white knuckled through it and I started to do, and I'm big about doing my own research. So I'll look at things like that. And I found the five stages of grief and, you know, knowing where I was and understanding that it wasn't linear on and on and on. And since that time, I've become a big proponent of getting some type of grief counseling. I just don't know any way around it. And I was talking to actually my cousin who her mother passed when she was 13 and I was an adult. And I'm thinking, how is it that we weren't getting you some kind of therapy. All that to say, what so much has happened through the pandemic, are those stages of grief, are they still relevant? Are they something that have been modified with just social changes? And has grief in some way changed post-pandemic? That's a two-parter. When I look at that question, I was thinking about it this morning that I think since the pandemic, as a whole, as a society, we're so much more aware of grief than we may have been before. Mm. I think people 
saw it all around them during the pandemic. And they're aware of the fact that a lot of people are grieving. And, you know, in fact, you go to the grocery store and walk down the aisle, like half the people you see are probably grieving. And Mm. we just never knew that before. We could never see it. And I think the pandemic made our grief more visible and made us aware also that we grieve together as a community also. There's community grief that even if no one that I knew well or cared about died during the pandemic, I felt tremendous grief for what was happening collectively in the community around me. And I think that for a lot of people was a new concept. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll move on to the five stages of grief that you talked about, because those have been around for a long time. And those five stages of grief being denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I think that you said the words yourself, grief isn't linear. And some people have concerns when we tell someone, well, there are these five stages you go through, then they think, oh, good, I'm at stage three. So I'm, you know, I'm more than halfway (laughs) done. And I'll, you know, in a couple months, I'll be through all of this. And that isn't really how grief works. It's all over the place. You bounce around and all of those emotions that the stages talk about, you go through all of them back and forth and up and down. So it isn't really linear in that way. And some people have come up with other models and other terms um, to help us think better about the grief process. But one that I like is just this model that grief isn't something that we get through and get over. Grief becomes part of us over time. Mm. And so we're not pushing the grief away or trying to resolve it or solve it. We learn Mm. how to live with our grief and it becomes incorporated into who we are as a person. And I think that that's pretty realistic as how we go through this journey because Even if you think about the deaths that have happened in your life, the sadness is still there, the pain Mm -hmm. and the feeling of loss, it's still there. You're just carrying it in a different way and you have lots of other experiences on top of it so it doesn't dominate your emotions and and your thoughts. It's a good way of thinking of that. Are you seeing more non-traditional or people kind of a shift in how they deal with grief? I guess we need to go back and What are some of the ways you've seen people deal with uh, grief and and death uh, versus how they're dealing with it now? Or have there been a change? Well, I think the pandemic, as you said, really shifted people to a place of getting more virtual support for grief, like Mm -hmm. being able to do online grief groups and and getting support online, which is actually really good because you mentioned the importance of therapy, but for some people really in the depths of grief, it's almost too hard to grab your keys, get dressed, make an appointment, drive somewhere and see someone for therapy. But if you can do it online virtually with a therapist, you may be able to do that when it feels just too hard to get out of the house at that moment. So that's one thing. But yeah, we each have different ways of processing our grief and going through it. And a book that I read called The Grieving Brain, a researcher talked about the fact that actually the grief process is really the brain is trying to relearn how to do everything without the person that used to be part of everything. So the brain actually has to go through all of these experiences all over again and learn what's it like when I get up in the morning and my person isn't there. And that really fascinated me that grief really is. It's this long 
learning process. And, you know, the first Christmas, your brain has to learn, oh gosh, what's Christmas like when my person isn't part of that with me or a Mm. birthday or anniversary? So anyway, that showed me that it's a long-term process we're going through and we have to be really gentle with ourselves as we go through this process. But I think people have various ways of dealing with grief. One of my favorites is writing, writing in a journal and writing out the feelings and thoughts so they don't get buried or stuck inside. I put them out on paper. For me, when I was grieving, I had to set aside, I got up 30 minutes earlier every morning and did my writing before Mm. anyone else was up. So I would have time to do that every day. And I think that's a really good way of just letting those feelings out. In a busy day, we sometimes just shove them down and we don't acknowledge them or deal with them. And I guess that runs into my next question is how grief shows up in everyone or if there's some, the commonalities. I mean, we know we have a myriad of cultures and socioeconomic levels and just ways we've been conditioned to deal with grief, whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're the oldest or the youngest, you know, it just, there's so many polarities within this grief spectrum. In your experience, though, have you found a commonality that goes across all of it? What we have in common is this extreme sadness and loss. And for some people that can cause shock, going into a state of shock almost or numbness. And I think that's fairly common, especially in the beginning, if after someone dies and it wasn't really expected or you didn't feel prepared for it. But also, there are lots of other emotions connected with grief that are very common. It's common to feel angry and to feel betrayed or abandoned or to feel guilty. That's also very common. A lot of people feel guilty and regret that they didn't say something to their loved one or they regret something they did and wish they hadn't done to their loved one before they died and have no means of taking that back. And I think those emotions are very common across the board, no matter who has experienced the loss. Are there any physiological expressions of grief that you can talk about? Yes, definitely. It's very common to have trouble sleeping at night and feeling exhausted, just physically exhausted, even along with the emotional exhaustion. And also to lose your appetite on one hand, you know, not feel like eating at all. Some people, though, go the opposite direction and kind of use food for comfort and may mm-hmm. tend to eat a lot. And so those physical disturbances can make it really hard in the beginning because then you get extremely exhausted and you find it difficult to do things to take care of yourself and to actually help you work with the grief that you have. That's actually true. I think I I snowballed into all that and I've seen other people just kind of snowball into one direction or the other. Is there a time frame? And I hate to say this, but is there a time window that you think or it has usually say one years, two years, three years, is it even realistic to say, well, give them four years before they get through that? And I say that because someone told me, you know, and of course I was angry about it. And they, you know, people say time heals everything, time heals all wounds. And at the time when you're, you know, going through it, you don't really want to hear that. But someone did say that to me. It was true. And then someone said, well, give it about a year. And someone else said, well, it's probably about two years. And all of a sudden I started getting all these time frames, and that just made me angry all over again. But is there a time frame or a window that you can say, well, maybe about three years, it'll be okay? Well, 
It's very difficult to do that. And it may not be helpful to do it, even though I think when people are in the midst of their despair, they just want to know, how long will I feel this way? How long Mm. will this go on? But in reality, like I was saying before, grief is something we end up kind of carrying with us, a piece of it or a portion of it within within us. It changes us in a way. And so we we bring that with us. And I'm reluctant to tell people any kind of time frame because right. everyone's journey is so different. And, you know, I look back at my grief over my dad's death and 11 years after he died, I went on a writing retreat and I just fell apart into my own mm. grief. And I was writing mm. all about my grief and his death. And I realized, wow, I didn't know I still had so much to deal with. But it mm-hmm. just told me when I thought about the brain has to relearn everything and you're reshaping everything. Some things you just can't deal with until down the road away, until later on. And it was at that 11-year point, I could look back and look a lot more clearly at things that happened around my my dad's death. And I started doing a lot more research and talking to other people and getting information then around his death. But it took that long for me to be at a place where it felt safe to me to go there. So I mean, if I'm sure someone listening is thinking, what? 11 years? That sounds horrible. But the idea is that your grief has, it's a process and you will Mm -hmm. be working on it. But it doesn't mean it was 11 years of sadness and feeling miserable. It was 11 years of just living my life and raising my kids and, you know, having a wonderful life, but with my grief always still being there and still needing attention. Oh, I love that that you're able to address that that way. And we don't think about that at all. And Mm-mm. the fact that, first of all, that your brain actually physically is changing and having to evolve into this new space. And that could take any number of years. And and the reason why I wanted to ask that is because I, <laughs> I, I got so tired of kind of being put into a place where I should have been, I should be done now. And I think that that's a real tricky and really unfair place to put someone where you should be done with your grief. For for sure. And it becomes a trap for us because then we start judging ourselves for not grieving the right way or questioning ourselves. And I think you mentioned grief therapy, and I think it's so valuable because you can get an outside opinion. You're not stuck in your own head questioning yourself like, am I doing this right? Shouldn't I be over this now? You have someone from the outside that can help you look at it differently and maybe see, oh, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be in this whole process of relearning things and figuring out my life now. And it's all fine. I'm doing a good job. I'm on the right path. Is it realistic to be able to prepare for grief? Uh, Like what we're doing now, we're talking about it, someone's listening to the show and everything's okay. Is there a way you can realistically prepare for grief or is it just the wall that you hit when you hit it? I think about this all the time because it's no matter what you do, it's, it is still a wall that you hit. But I realized after dealing with grief over my father's death for so many years, when it was time for my mother to die, I was in a completely different place. I understood grief. I had been mm-hmm. dealing with it for years. I did feel like I was prepared. And so I knew a lot of things. I knew like I have to make sure I'm going to visit my mom really often and there are things we need to talk about. 
things we each need to forgive. I want to work through those. I want to have time with her. And because I was able to be intentional about it, knowing when she's gone, that my opportunity has gone for all of this healing. So having been through it once really helped me be better prepared. And, and when she died, of course, I still felt the sadness and all the grief from not having her there. But we had done so much work together and so much healing and so much forgiveness that it felt okay. And that really helped me a lot in my grief over mom's death. I love that. I'm sorry, I took a pause because I just, yeah, I can feel that. I love that. That's great. Did you have any other words of wisdom for our listeners or in, in how to deal with grief? I'll let you have the floor. <laughs> the first thing that I learned that was I remember in the beginning, and this went on for a few years, every morning I would wake up and think, someday I'm going to wake up and I will feel exactly like I felt before my dad died. And that's Mm -hmm. what I was holding on to. That's what I wanted to have happen. And it finally hit me, wait, I'm never going back to the way things were before he died. That isn't possible. Like a huge event like this in your life, something this catastrophic, it's meant to change everything. It's supposed to change everything. And I was refusing to change. I was refusing to let it change me. I wanted to go backwards in time. As soon as I understood, like, I have to allow that everything has changed. My whole world has changed and the way things look has changed. And I've changed. As soon as I allowed that, that's actually the moment I had that realization is when I started working in hospice. I changed my career path because I realized I'm a new person now. I know things. I've experienced things I didn't know about before. And so that's the first bit of advice is recognize you have to allow it to change you and to change your life Mm -hmm. and kind of give up trying to go backwards. And then I already mentioned like making a time every morning to write about my grief. I think you really have to make a space in your life for your grief because we all end up, we go back to work, we have families to take care of, we're busy. And making just a little, even 15 minutes a day as a little grief space where I sit down, have my dad's picture, I light a little candle, I write in my journal, and that's acknowledging the loss and the change that has happened, but it only takes a few minutes each day. That helps me hold it together the rest of the day in some ways by having that little space and time where I honor the grief. I love that. I'm going to leave that right there. I think that was such a a poignant point. And I just want to thank you again for this discussion. And I'll just reiterate again, I just I wish I had the the end of life podcast, but we have Mm -hmm. it now. And it is such a really good resource. And I wanted to extend my gratitude to you and your team for uh, your thoughtful and resourceful podcast and information that you're putting out there for everyone. On top of that, where can they find you? I've mentioned the podcast, but you also have some books and you also have some other informational tools. They can go to the website eoluniversity.com. That stands for End of Life University, EOL University. And there they'll find books, the podcast, a few online courses that I have available. And that's probably the best way to connect with all of that information. So it's eoluniversity.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. It's, It's been wonderful to talk with you, Alicia. Thank you for listening to 50 Now What? A special thank you to Dr. Wyatt. Be sure to visit her at her website, eoluniversity.com, 
to find the End of Life podcast and all her other resources. Make sure to follow us, rate, and share the show. Make sure to follow me on Instagram for continuous updates at 50 Now What Podcast. That's 5-0 Now What Podcast. This podcast was produced by Rainbow Creative with Matthew Jones as senior producer, Stephen Selnick as producer, and Rob Johnson as editor and audio engineer. I love working with this team. To learn more about making a podcast for you or your business, visit them at rainbowcreative.co.